Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would do a deep dive into the issue of repression and memory and recovered memories and child sexual abuse and allegations that come up decades later regarding child sexual abuse and all that other stuff. It's uh, The reason why I want to talk about this is because I, I recently watched the documentary on Netflix called The Keepers. It came out in 2017, directed by Ryan White. This documentary touches on many interesting topics. It's, it's, it is, it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. It's, a, it's probably seven or eight episodes or something. It is potentially better than making a murderer. Uh, it's, it's just, it's so compelling. It's, it's just a, a very, it's the, the issues brought up are actually not anything necessarily new, but the scope is so big and the way that they put it all together, it, it's just riveting. It, it's, I'm not going to spoil it, uh, much, I guess. And I'm not even going to talk about the documentary too much. Mostly what I'm going to talk about today is research regarding recovered memories and child sexual, sexual abuse. But basically, The Keepers, it starts off as a murder mystery. Then it goes into sexual abuse and trauma. Then it goes into police corruption and government corruption on a huge scale. It goes into the power of institutions and the Catholic Church and the legal system and the prosecution system, and it goes into repressed memories, and it goes into how Facebook can help people come together and advocate for things, and how research and how just grassroots research can be done to actually, uh, uh, you know, attain legal, um, I don't know what you call it, um, justice. <laughs> um and so now, having said all that, when I heard someone describe this documentary to me when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, I don't want to watch that. It sounds terribly depressing and awful. And it's not, uh, it's not necessarily uplifting, but it's not, as, it's not a drudgery, if that makes any sense. It, it's, actually, uh, it's actually very interesting to watch, and it's not, uh, I didn't feel depressed. I was moved, but I, I didn't feel depressed by it. Um, although it is a potentially depressing topic. And if you have experienced childhood abuse, particularly sexual abuse, my guess is is that you should be very careful about watching this because there are uh, lots of conversations with victims and recreations, like like not you know graphic recreations, but like you know, kind of like these dramatic recreations of what it was like for some of these women in the 60s. And it would absolutely be triggering. So you should, you should just be careful. But anyway, um, all of these issues, you know, these various different issues, the murder mystery, sexual abuse, Catholic Church, government corruption, police corruption, repressed memories, all these things are presented in a really fascinating way in the documentary. And I thought I would talk about this documentary, but I I thought I would, I wanted to do a deep dive, and instead of doing a deep dive on all 10 of those topics, I thought I would just dive into the main psychological issue involved in this documentary, which is repressed memories. I get a lot of emails about repressed memories. For example, a patron wrote me recently. She wrote, hey, Kirk, my question is this. Do repressed memories exist? I've always been a non-believer. It brings to mind the satanic abuse crisis of the 90s where all these people suddenly recovered memories of bizarre abuses and many people were falsely accused and imprisoned. 
However, over the past few months of working with a trauma therapist, I have had a few very vague images of early abuse in my own life, small details that I had not previously remembered. I knew abuse that uh, I knew abuse had occurred in my life, but I have never known what exactly happened. Now I randomly get these memories of what happened. It sometimes happens in therapy, but it typically happens at home. I feel like I'm losing my mind. I'm worried that I'm just making these things up in an attempt to close the gaps in my memory. Kirk, do you, uh, Kirk, what is your opinion on this? So, sorry, Kirk, your opinion on this would mean a lot to me. Have you had clients with similar issues? How have you approached it? End, end of email. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to do a deep dive on the concept of repression, the history of the concept going back to Charcot and Freud and Breuer, what happened in the 90s in terms of what the patron is talking about, what does the research say. There's a lot of research on this. How do clinicians view this today? There's a lot of research on that too. Is it possible to repress memories and then later, quote unquote, recover them? And also, we're going to talk about the implications for treatment and my recommendations to everyone else. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. I apologize for that. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Just search for Psychology in Seattle. Become a patron and you'll get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes, including this one, in which we do deep dives into various topics. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support, including petfinder.com. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. We love you so, so much. It is super cool to know that you're out there listening and appreciating this podcast, I really just can't tell you how much that means to me. You know, we're a small operation, and so, um, you know, the small audience that we have in terms of the patrons, it's, it's, um, it's just, it's a very special community, and I like emailing with you guys and, and um, uh, social media-ing with you guys on Facebook mainly. All right, repression. The concept, the history. Freud, as many other terms that we talk about, Freud introduced the term in the 1890s, way back when. He was influenced by Charcot and by Breuer, his mentors, and their specifically, specifically Charcot and Breuer's idea about hysteria. For more information on hysteria and histrionic disorder, just listen to my deep dive on hysteria and histrionic because it's, it's a very complicated topic. But in a nutshell, Freud thought that the concept of repression was central to the foundation of psychoanalysis. So repression wasn't just this minor issue for him. It was like the, the main issue for, the, for what psychoanalysis was based on. In 1914, for instance, Freud wrote that repression is the, quote, foundation stone on which the whole structure of psychoanalysis rests, unquote. Of course, that's translated. But Freud postulated that when people are sexually abused, they sometimes repress those memories to protect the self. People often hack on Freud, but in my experience, this is usually because 
They are parroting things that they heard from other ignorant people. You know, I used to be this way too. I used to think that Freud was ridiculous. And because I was told that essentially by my instructors. But when I actually looked into Freud's writing, I was stunned at how much is still relevant today. And he accomplished all of this without much help, really, because today authors and authors in the 50s and 60s and beyond, they could they could pull from so much other uh, source, so many other sources and also from a lot of empirical research, whereas Freud was just he was just venturing off on his own. And what's the chance of one person being able to get so much right with so little assistance? I mean, sure, he had assistance, but but he got so much right. And so, um, you know, it, it's really um, a marvel. Now, are some of his ideas ridiculous and no longer relevant? Absolutely. There are many of his ideas that I consider to just be like completely wackadoo. But, you know, when you come up with a, such such a broad theory in such a short amount of time with such limited resources, you know, some of your ideas are going to be a little wackadoo. Um, but, but most of his ideas are still uh, very relevant. So contrary to what many believe, Freud had a very nuanced and what I might call contemporary view of what repression is. He found that uh, in his work with actual human beings, he found that when people recovered memories in therapy, so people would come to therapy and they would recover memories, he found that these memories were sometimes accurate and sometimes they were false. So he had, he had, a, he had a nuanced view. He, he didn't think that all recovered memories were always accurate. He concluded that most of the time the recovered memories were a combination of both truth and of fiction, which is frankly how many experts see it today, including myself. Also, he thought that sexual abuse resulted in repression which resulted in psychological symptoms like conversions or depression. So he, in, in his observations, he saw that uh, people would come to his office, they would uh, re, you know, talk about child sexual abuse, or they would recover memories of child sexual abuse. And as they uh, talked about these experiences, other psychological symptoms reduced, like depression, conversions, and these kinds of things. And this was his early view of hysteria. Hysteria had a very broad definition back in the day. But, uh, and many people today would, would agree with that uh, phenomenon, that people experience abuse as children. They don't like to think about it because they're ashamed and stigmatized and marginalized. And then later on in life as adults, they come, you know, because they're having troubles in their relationships and they're having troubles with their moods and with addictions and they come to therapy and they start talking about their lives. And then it comes out that they were abused and they start to process these feelings. And as a result, what happens is you see less symptoms, psychological, you know, pathological symptoms. And Freud observed this early in his career, which is, you know, uh, amazing. So Freud had two different meanings for the term repression, which makes it confusing. He, in one definition, he basically, it, the way Freud writes, he writes more like a, I don't know, a novelist in some ways. And so he, he's kind of rambling in a lot of ways, in my opinion. And so he doesn't write like a textbook. He doesn't say repression, definition, da, 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 da. You know, he, 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 he sort of meanders, if that makes any sense. And so, so pulling from his writing, 
which some people consider to be like brilliant writing and brilliant prose. I am not one of those people because it's hard for me to understand what he's saying. And I hate it when people are difficult to understand. But anyway, uh, according to, you know, when you actually look at his Freud's writing on repression, he seems to be defining it in two different ways. One is, is that it's a fully unconscious defense. And the other is that it's a conscious defensive strategy. And let me explain. So, so it, in one definition, repression naturally occurs when we're traumatized and we're completely unaware of that mechanism. We, you know, we're, we're abused as children and then this mechanism just kind of kicks in for us and pushes those memories into the unconscious before we even know what's happening. And so it all just happens without our awareness. In another definition, which is quite different, he saw repression as a conscious volitional defensive strategy that our conscious mind does. So someone is sexually abused and then these memories keep kind of popping into their head and they don't like it. And so then the person consciously says, okay, I'm going to try to forget this. I'm going to try to not think about this. And, and whenever these memories come up, I'm going to distract myself with something else. And, and so that's, that's, those are two very different definitions. And he had both, he wrote, he referenced both of those concepts. So it makes it confusing. Now, incidentally, I personally believe that repression can be both. It can be both a unconscious thing that happens outside of our awareness, or it can happen because we consciously decide that we want to repress something. Also, Freud used the term repression to refer in a much broader way to the natural way in which we don't remember our early childhoods. You know, you know, m most of us, uh, if not all of us, or most of us have... Ha there are very few people who remember anything prior to the age of, say, three. I actually myself have have a few memories of when I was two, maybe even one. But I definitely have a memory of when I was two. The reason why I'm very confident in the memory is because I remember remembering it when I was like six or seven. Uh, I remember when I was and I remember talking about it with my parents and asking them when I was very young. I, I, I you know, I remember saying. I remember these stairs and this lamp and stuff. And they're like, yeah, actually that, that was the stairs in our house. And when we, and that was the house that we lived in when, and that we moved out of when I was two and a half. So it was either when I was just turning two or maybe even one. Um, incidentally, the, the memory I have is I'm, I'm standing at the bottom of these, my, my parents early in their, you know, lives when they were just having us kids and, and it was, you know, 1971 or two, we lived in Kent uh, near the railroad tracks, Kent, Washington, which is near Seattle. And uh, they rented the upper floor of a house. So, you know, someone had this two-story house and we, uh, my family rented the, ups, up, the upper portion and there was a, a set of stairs on the outside of the house that led up to, they, they, you know, the upper part of the house had its own set of stairs. Uh, if you're familiar with Happy Days, you remember Fonzie living upstairs. It was it was that, and that those are the stairs I remember because and and the the feeling I remember having was, oh my god, I have to climb these fucking stairs because <laughs> it wasn't a typical set of stairs. They were kind of steep and they were they, they were very long and they were wooden. And I remember just thinking, my God, this is going to take me a long time. <laughs> you know, things as an adult you don't really think about. But imagine being, you know, however 
large a two-year-old is, you know, two and a half feet, and and just and just looking up at these gigantic stairs and just thinking, each one of these stairs is going to take some doing, and and I got it, but I got to get up there if I, you know, anyway. Um, so Freud re- referred to uh, the fact that we don't remember many of our memories in our early childhood. He called this primary repression. And he didn't think of this as a as a defense mechanism. He just considered a, a normal part of development. So that's another confusing element to this term repression is that it it it's uh, has other forms that have nothing to do with a defense mechanism for child abuse or anything. So okay, what is what is Freud saying when he's talking about uh, repression? Well, it's a defensive process or a defense mechanism. Basically, it's a mechanism that the ego employs to protect the self from a threatening idea or a threatening memory or a painful feeling or a distressing thought. The, you know, the idea, memory, feeling, thought that is threatening, it's excluded from the conscious mind. It's a form of denial. So originally, the term was used for many types of mental experience, including you know, even childhood forgetfulness. But eventually, the term repression over the decades throughout the 20th century, it, it became uh, uh, used solely to refer to the memory repression part of it, even though originally the, the definition which was much broader than that. It was used to include uh, thoughts and, and ideas and feelings. Uh, so, uh, but eventually repression was uh, kind of narrowed down to just memories and and really particularly traumatic memories from our childhood. So Freud also believed that repression requires a lot of energy to accomplish by the ego. The, the memory is constantly trying to emerge. It's constantly striving for release so it can be processed and, and dealt with. And this pressure to emerge that's pushing against the mechanism of repression can cause psychological and behavioral symptoms like depression, anxiety, acting out, projection, nightmares, conversions, hysteria, etc. So that that's how he saw repression. Now, incidentally, today, uh, it's generally accepted that for for some repression incidents, that is true. That it does require energy and it might create symptoms, but. But some of the times when you repress something, it doesn't actually cause any bad things to happen to you. It's just, it just happens and, and it might even be healthy for you. But I'll get more into that later. Okay, so throughout the 20th century, later Freudians and later psychoanalysts and other people who worked with people with trauma, they, they, it seems to me, and it's hard always to tell, but it seems to me like in the 20th century after Freud, a lot of people started overusing the concept of repression and they seemingly started seeing repression where it wasn't happening. It's hard to tell because when I read old writings, they seem to know even more than what we know today. And so, I mean, it's actually bizarre. I, sometimes I read stuff from like even Ferenzi, who was one of Freud's con- contemporaries and pupils, I read some of his work and I'm like, whoa, like he seems more advanced than people writing today, <laughs> you know? So, so I don't want to call everyone in the past stupid, but from what I can tell, it seems like the field kind of became a little repression happy 
and a little sure of themselves that they could detect repression and that repression was everywhere. And so, um, so what happened was people in our field started looking for ways to help people recover memories. And they actually, you know, looked into hypnosis. And so hypnosis in the past was also misunderstood. Uh, when we actually look at it through the empirical lens, we, we see hypnosis for what it is. You know, hypnosis is a thing and it actually does some things, but many of the kind of magical claims uh, that, that are being made about hypnosis are just not demonstrated. Uh, someone recently wrote me, I think a patron wrote me about the recent episode of Invisibilia. And Invisibilia is, is a crapshoot. Sometimes it's amazing and sometimes it's completely ridiculous. Well, one of the episodes had uh, a ridiculous chapter in it, which had to do with this principal who was kind of stupidly hypnotizing his kids to try to improve their grades and moods and stuff. And, and I think one or more of the kids ended up uh, killing themselves. And it was basically blamed on this hypnosis process. And, and it just, this episode basically upheld the idea that hypnosis was this magical thing that you could completely program people to do whatever you want and sort of mess up their brain. And, and that's just not demonstrated when you actually look at what hypnosis actually is. Uh, the, in a nutshell, the way that I conceptualize hypnosis is it's basically just a form of guided mindfulness, if that makes any sense. You, we all know, if you don't know what mindfulness is, it's just a, a practice of really slowing down, relaxing, focusing your mind, you know, f relaxing your body, relaxing your muscles, and trying to be aware of your the way your mind works. And then even then, you might even try to introduce certain ideas, you know, like, I'm a good person, and... I don't have anything to be ashamed of and I'm, I'm in the now and I'm not going to worry about the future. You know, those, those kinds of things. Well, when we do that just by ourselves, it, it has been shown to have an effect with some people, not a drastic effect. It's not like if you take someone who has major depression and you give them mindfulness, it's going to automatically cure them. But when we, you know, give it to a wide swath of people there, you know, there tends to be some effect and for some people, it's amazing. And for some people, it doesn't do anything. And for some people, it actually harms them. But hypnosis is basically that. It's just someone kind of walking you through that process. And, you know, for instance, uh, people will say, well, hypnosis, you know, like I completely f lost time. He, he hypnotized me for an hour and I felt like it was only five minutes. Well, the same is true for mindfulness. If you really know how to do uh, mindfulness, um, or you're listening to a mantra or you're, or something like that, or you're doing deep relaxation, You this, the experience is the same. Anyway, the point is, is that back in the day, they did not understand any of this stuff. And hypnosis was this kind of magical thing that uh, they thought they could, uh, if, if you did hypnosis right, you could actually open up the unconscious. They believed that memory was something that we understand to be very different. They believe that memory uh, recovered during hypnosis was 100% accurate because hypnosis, what they believed, they believed that hypnosis gave access to your pure memories. And people started using hypnosis as a legal tool to prove to juries that something really happened. 
you know, they, they, someone would go to hypnosis and then the hypnotist would put them under and then ask them a bunch of questions and then they'd get a bunch of data. And, oh, so your, your grandfather was a sat- Satanist and sexually abused you. And then the, the hypnotist would bring this, uh, you know, data to court and juries would be convinced because people believed that hypnotism was this magical door into the unconscious and a magical door into memories that were lost. And so they also thought that memory worked differently. They thought that memory was this sort of uh, in, uh, concrete data recorder. You know, they, they thought that we recorded every single memory in a pure form and that if we could somehow access those memories, we could access like exactly what happened. Now we would of course later realize that memory is completely malleable and messy. And every time we remember something, we change it a little bit and recreate it. So, uh, but we didn't know that back then. So we, so we didn't understand memory and we didn't understand hypnosis and there was a lot of dubious things happening. And this massive misunderstanding led to what happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. There was a lot of wacky stuff. Psychologists tried a number of things to try to access these pure memories with hypnosis and other things. And since it was the 60s and 70s, and a lot of these young psychologists were in Berkeley, there's this natural tendency to use drugs to... (laughs) To help, And so one of these people, his name was Lake, 1966, he actually used LSD to help people recover memories. And he claimed that his subjects uh, recalled memories of their births. So not just like, you know, random memories from one's childhood, but he, you know, Lake in 1966, he claimed that his subjects who were using LSD could remember uh, memories from how they were born. These, these people on... LSD would describe extremely detailed stories about emerging from their mother's wombs. Okay. Um, now, incidentally, uh, there are occasional people who seem to actually remember their births, but the idea that you could just take a bunch of random people, give them LSD and that, and then like basically ask them to go back further and further while they're hallucinating, incidentally, um, the fact that the the possibility that that somehow opens a door to your early memories of of being born is just absurd. But, you know, people, memory experts will um, agree with me on that one. Skipping forward, nineteen seventy five, Groff conducted similar experience uh, experiments. Sorry, and also claimed that his subjects recovered images of of their births. But not only that, but his, but he claimed that his subjects recovered memories of being in the womb. So here we have situations in which, you know, actual researchers in our field are claiming that they can, that they have a technique of accessing pure memories uh, of, of childhood and of being born and of being in the womb. Imagine, imagine that, you know, these are legitimate scientists claiming that they found this. Um, the trend of recovered memories continued into the 80s. For example, Chamberlain in 1986 used hypnosis and claimed that he could recover memories of birth and in the womb. He also tried to corroborate these memories by asking the mothers about the subject's births. 
you know, that this, you know, he's like, well, so your son, here's what his account is. He remembers this and he remembers that you were there and you were an adult. Then is this true that, that this happened? And Chamberlain 1986 claimed that there was confirmation that the recovered memories were true. Now, anyone who understands research design knows that this is pretty dubious research that is, you know, uh, and you should be skeptical of. But um, now, again, just as a caveat, is it possible for someone to remember being in the womb? Sure. Is it also equally possible to invent a memory and then become very convinced of it? Yes, it's probably more likely. But, you know, it's hard to tell. And that's the other thing about, which I'll get into more later, but it's hard to, de- it's hard to prove whether or not someone's memory, quote-unquote, of an event is actually true or not. Because, you know, how much of it is just what you would surmise. I mean, imagine if you had to just imagine what it would be like to be in a womb. Well, you'd be like, well, I hear a heartbeat. I hear kind of like, just like muffled noises. I'm, I feel very warm and... I, you know, I feel kind of uncomfortable at times, so I shift around. You know, it, it wouldn't be hard to just kind of invent some stuff, right? And then for how would you confirm whether or not my account of that was inaccurate or not? You know, it's, that's, it's impossible to, to confirm or deny that memory. So, so anyway, um, this trend of recovered memories continued into the 90s. For example, Ibrahim in 1992 made similar claims about hypnosis helping people recover these memories. So well into the 90s, there were legit scientists saying that hypnosis could recover these pure unconscious memories from the past, and they were being used in court. And there were many others who made similar claims. And although these claims were controversial at the time, so it's not like everyone was on board with this, but many in our field considered these to be completely legitimate these were peer-reviewed research articles. They were completely accepted by, you know, a good portion of our, of our field. And by the way, whenever I come across this sort of research, I'm reminded as to why people don't think we are a legitimate science, because we've had decades of extremely spurious research and study designs, and these problems still exist today. I mean, just look at the idiotic evolutionary psychology research. So, when, whenever people hack on my profession and say, like, you guys are a soft science, stop acting like you're a hard science, I just have to, you know, I get defensive, but then I actually go, well, it's, you know, we, we haven't had a very good track record, and we don't have a track rec- good track record right now. So, you know, we could do better. So as a result of all of this research on recovered memories and hip, hip, hypnosis and LSD, and also because of the belief system that sort of upheld all these, uh, all these beliefs. Many believe that hypnosis at the time was a very reliable method of recovering memories. For example, a study in 1994 found that about a third of MA level psychotherapists and about a fourth of PhD psychotherapists agreed that traumatic memories recovered during hypnosis were quote unquote objectively accurate, sorry, objectively must actually have occurred. So, you know, about about a third of professionals in our field in 1994 believe that hypnosis, that, that when a memory emerges during hypnosis, that that is 100% reliable data regarding what exactly happened. People wouldn't say that today. So this study is 1994, 20 years ago. 
uh, people today would that the I don't know what the percentage would be. Well, at least I hope the percentage would be a lot about a lot smaller. Um, you know, I, I just anecdotally, I would guess ten percent or something. But but I don't know. I'd have to see those data. But the point is, is that in the '90s you had uh, a lot of people who were extremely smitten with the idea of recovered memories through hypnosis. And you probably had another group of people who were, you know, skeptical. And then you had another group of people who were like completely dismissive of the idea. So there was a mixture, but there was a sizable percentage that were completely convinced that could, that recovered memories were always accurate. Um, I suspect the reason why is because there were so many people who were ashamed and marginalized and made to shut up about the abuse that they went through. And then they go into therapy and maybe through hypnosis or through other means, they they are finally given a space to talk about their childhood sexual abuse. And the stories are very elaborate and are maybe even confirmed by other people who were abused or maybe even the perpetrator. And then as time goes on, as a clinician, you start realizing, wow, there's a lot of people out there who have been abused and the memories only emerge in therapy. That's the only, you know, they... They, they they don't remember it otherwise and then they come into therapy and we start talking about their childhood and then all of a sudden these these memories start coming out. So there, there was a real phenomenon that was happening. It wasn't like they were just completely in left field, but they were taking it too far. They, they, they were seeing something that Freud saw and they wanted, uh, uh, this is my own, you know, uh, sort of take on it. They wanted to help, but they didn't understand the limitations of their science and of their practice. And they wanted to have more power and they, and they wanted to do something about it. You know, they wanted to they wanted to prosecute the perpetrators. And in order to do that, you need to have like definitive proof. And, and one of the ways you can do that is sort of prop up a science like hypnotism and, and recovered memories as a way of going to court and saying like, look, science says that recovered memories through hypnotism is real. And so we need to put this person behind bars. So I'm guessing that a lot of times this was completely fair and legitimate. It was bad science being used for probably a good purpose of actually trying to prosecute a perpetrator. But whenever you prop up something that isn't accurate, there's going to be a problem. For example, in 1990s, uh, as the patron was talking about, we had this famous California case that involved many therapists inserting false memories of sexual abuse into a bunch of children. Uh, I should do a whole episode just on this whole event. It's fascinating. It's very, there's a lot of nuances, a lot of like ins and outs. And uh, this famous California case resulted in many people being falsely accused and, con and convicted of extreme sexual abuse. We're not talking just like, your everyday run-of-the-mill sexual abuse. We're talking about like satanic, like blood and just, you know, just the worst possible scenarios you, you've ever heard. Not unheard of. Certainly these things happen, but, but, uh, but, you know, but they were all false. Uh, basically these overzealous therapists ruined an entire community of families and caregivers. Now I should say on the onset that I, I don't, I haven't looked into this case that much and it's possible that when I look into it, I might find that some of the sexual abuse might seem like it's possibly legitimate. Um, so I hesitate to say that all of it was 
was false memories. But I do know that a good portion of it was, if not all of it was. And so all, so these, I think it was a daycare. There was this, you know, uh, woman who ran this daycare and she was this ringleader of this satanic, like terrible sexual abuse. And it involved like all these other people in the community. Basically it was a picture of like dozens of adults uh, who were satanically, ritualistically abusing all these kids in this daycare. And it was awful. And many people's lives were completely ruined. Even after it, they were exonerated, their reputations and their lives uh, over the years had had been in shambles. I mean, imagine if you were in the news 24-7 as the satanic ringleader of sexually abusing dozens and dozens of kids. I mean, you know, that's, I just can't imagine what that'd be like. And all of it, from what I can tell based on the limited information I have was that you basically had all these overzealous therapists who were looking for something and basically injected all these memories into children. And it was terribly embarrassing for our profession. It was one of the worst moments of our you know, contemporary lives. Just, watching because these therapists got on got on the stand and they spoke out in the media and they wouldn't give it up you know they were completely convinced of all this stuff and then it later came out that there's a way that you can inject memories at the time it was like well how come these kids would talk about such elaborate uh you know stories of being sexually if you have a four-year-old talking about satanic rituals and anal sex and, you know, orgies and stuff. If you have a four-year-old talking about that, there's no way they would know that stuff without it having, hap- hap- you know, happened to them. And you have all these kids saying the same story, so it must be true, right? Well, when you actually look back, and I think they even have recordings of these sessions with the therapists, you have these recovered memory therapists or just general therapists who are working with these kids. And basically, if you don't know how this works, um, I'll describe it very briefly. But basically, it's like you're talking to a kid and you're, and you're saying to them, so Johnny, how are you today? And Johnny says, I'm fine. And then you say, so Johnny, I was just wanting to know if anything bad ever happened when you were at this daycare. And Johnny would say, well, I don't know, because it's a very general question. And plus, four-year-old Johnny doesn't really know how to communicate verbally very well and doesn't really understand the context of what you're asking. And so you're just like, well, what I'm, what I'm asking about is, did anyone ever touch you in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? And then Johnny says like, huh, well, I don't know, maybe. And then, because Johnny doesn't even get what you're saying. And then the therapist says, well... What I'm really wanting to know is if anyone touched you in a way that made you feel uncomfortable. And then Johnny, John, now at this point, Johnny is like, I'm detecting that this adult who I really want to please is looking for a particular answer. You know, how often are kids in a position where they're talking to an adult and they're confused or scared or they're trying to hide something? And they get the impression that the adult wants them to say something. You know, Johnny takes a cookie out of the cookie jar and you come up to Johnny and say, Johnny, why did you take a cookie out of the cookie jar? And Johnny says, I don't know. And then you say, well, I really need to know why and how you took, you know, there's so many situations where 
children are like, okay, how do I get out of this essentially? And what do I need to say to get this to stop? Cause I just want to play and I don't want to be asked these stupid questions. And so, so the therapist, so Johnny, you know, again, asks, repeats the question. So I'm just wanting to know, did anyone ever touch you in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? And then Johnny's like, um, yes. You know, cause at this point, Johnny's just like, okay, what do you want me to say? And then, and it, but it's not a mature, well thought out, intelligent, like, here's what I'm going to say. It's just, they're basically just reacting in the moment. You know, they're not, they don't have an overall scheme. They're just like, uh-huh. Yeah, sure. And then the therapist, oh, well, who was that person? And then Johnny says, I don't know, because at this point, Johnny's like, I don't even know what we're talking about. And then the therapist is like, okay, well, was it your, was it, you know, Mrs. Johnson? Did, was, did she touch you in a way that made you feel uncomfortable? And then at this point, Johnny's like, oh, I get it. They want me to go along with this game called Let's Talk About Mrs. Johnson. And it's like, yeah, she touched me. In a per- because the other thing is, is Johnny might go, what is inappropriate touching? And I don't even know what that means. Does that mean, you know, because maybe Mrs. Johnson spanked him once or maybe Mrs. Johnson kind of grabbed him to get to, you know, prevent him from hitting somebody or something. And so Johnny's like, yeah, she touched me inappropriately. Yes, yes. And then the therapist, okay, so so where did she touch you inappropriately? And then he says, oh, I don't know, on my body. And she's like, oh, okay, let me show, give a doll here, and you show me where, where Mrs. Johnson touched you. And then Johnny, Johnny points at, you know, like the arm or something and says, I don't know, here. And then uh, the therapist kind of frowns and says, did she touch you anywhere else? And Johnny's like, oh, she didn't like the arm. You know, kids pick up on stuff. If, if the therapist has an agenda, which clearly the therapist does in the situation. Uh, now, the therapist doesn't know they have an agenda is the thing. They're, they're trying to do good. The therapist isn't trying to lead the witness, but they are, they're trying to help. But what they don't realize is they are subtly socializing the child to, to, to disclose a very particular story. And this has been demonstrated time and time again. If you go into an interview and say, I'm going to convince this child to tell me that they were abducted by aliens, I can do that. And, and, they, and the child will believe it. Because the other thing is, is kids don't really understand the difference between reality and play and, and made up memories. And, you know, kids, four-year-olds believe in Santa Claus and, you know, all sorts of things that they've never seen before because they've been fed this story, you know. So anyway, you know, okay, he, he, she touched you on the arm inappropriately, but did she touch you anywhere else? And then he starts just kind of randomly pointing on the doll, and then eventually he lands on the crotch. And then the, the therapist says, oh, so Mrs. Johnson touched you here in your crotch inappropriately. Is that right, Johnny? And Johnny's like, oh, that's that must have been what she's like. Yes, she touched me inappropriate in the crotch. Okay, so you continue down this road. And in this, these California cases, you get to this point where eventually you're talking about satanic rituals. And basically all this is fed to the child from the therapist. You know, the therapist just has this active imagination and there's no bounds to what you can tell a four-year-old to remember, quote unquote. And then years later, these children come forward and say, none of those things happened. All of those things 
I just made up because the the therapist it seemed like that that's what the therapist wanted to hear. Now, I, as a caveat, I just want to say these techniques um, have been used in legitimate cases. So this isn't to say that these techniques are always bad. They they can actually work to help people reveal actual sexual abuse, but because of the way that it's done, it has a fairly high rate of false positives, meaning that it can produce false and you know false memories and false allegations. So we can't use those techniques, which I'll get into more later. But so that's what happened in these California cases. I don't know how many therapists, but I, I know it was a number of them. And there were there were again, I think dozens of kids. And eventually they got a, these, these, this group of therapists working with dozens of kids. They, they managed to get a number of adults accused of the most extreme, you know, heinous child abuse that had ever happened. And again, from the little I understand, none of it was accurate. So, and it, and it came out eventually that none of it was accurate, but it took years of like looking at this and blah, blah, blah. So, after this California debacle, a huge fight raged between the, the quote-unquote false memory advocates and the victim advocates. Basically, the false memory people formed a number of organizations to fight our profession. A, a bunch of people who were harmed by these false allegations got together and said, if we don't do something, other people are, are going to be falsely accused too. And so one of these foundations that they formed was the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. It was founded in 92 by Pamela Freed and Peter Freed. They, they founded it because Peter Freed was accused of sexually molesting his daughter. And uh, it came out later that it was a, a false memory. And, you know, and these are terrible events and these foundations actually probably did us some good at the time. Uh, but they took a very extreme point of view that I don't agree with. Uh, but um, here, here are their uh, positions. Number one, they, they held that there was no such thing as a recovered memory. Uh, basically, they were saying that there was no empirical evidence of this, you know, repression idea. They also were asking questions like, why would someone wait so long to report a crime? You know, if someone was sexually abused, why would someone wait 30 years to to report that crime? Why wouldn't they just report it earlier? Um, uh, and also they believe that people make up memories of child sexual abuse because they want to sue other people for money or they have other sort of gain that they want to get out of accusing someone of child sexual abuse. Like they want to tear them down. They're vindictive for some reason. And so they, they do that. These, um, these false memory people also held that therapists were just injecting these memories into people's heads, which is actually sometimes true. Whereas on the other side of the fight, you had the victim advocates and they were saying that sexual abuse is common. And they were saying that many victims come forward many years later after they've had the power to do so. You know, when you're a child, it's, it's almost impossible to come forward. And many children actually do come forward and tell people and they're shot down. So they have to wait until they're adults to have the power to be able to actually come forward. So, uh, so there's that. Uh, victim advocates also held that recovered memories and repression are real phenomena. They also held that we need to listen to victims instead of marginalizing them. And they also held that if someone has the guts to come forward, 
then they've had to overcome a lot of stigma and a lot of shame, and therefore they must be telling the truth. So both of these sides took a, a very extreme view, in my point, in, in my opinion. And incidentally, the fight is still raging. There's still, in the empirical literature and, and in the legal community and in our society, there are still people who are fighting, as evidenced by this documentary, The Keepers. You know, you still see this 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 marginalization. So, so people who have a vested interest in marginalizing, uh, you know, recovered memories and child sexual abuse, then that's what they do. And then for people who... Uh, are on the side of the victims, then they, they are, they're fighting on the other side. And both sides, in my opinion, have some extreme views that are not uh, accurate, in my opinion, which I'll get into more in a second. So many, many mental health people were embarrassed in the United States by the California debacle, and they were also embarrassed by this debate that was happening. So they decided to create a bunch of task forces, a bunch of you know research teams to figure out what happened during this California case and how to address it in the future so it doesn't happen again. So where are we today? Well, uh, in terms of our profession and our society, it's really a mixed bag. Some people believe that repression is 100% ridiculous and recovered memories are ridiculous. And then you have other people who believe that repression and recovered memories are 100% real. For example, uh, on the extreme end of this, on the you know spectrum, I know clinicians who still believe that the California cases were totally legit, and they completely reject any notion that recovered memories could could be false. I, I talked with someone like this. She was she was completely convinced that the satanic, you know, California abuse cases were complete, completely legit. Now, again, I haven't done a deep dive on those, so maybe I'll actually somewhat agree with this person, but from the little I understand about the California 90s, you know, recovered memories cases, the general consensus is that the whole thing was just one big ridiculous debacle. But there are people today practicing who are completely convinced that all of those kids were telling true stories. So, you know, so you have people that believe that it's all ridiculous. Recovered memories are ridiculous. And you have other people that are like extremely believing of recovered memories and extremely disbelieving that you could inject a memory into a child's mind. And then also you have some people who are in the middle somewhere, somewhere between believing in recovered memories and believing in recovered memories can be silly sometimes. And then you have a whole other group of people who are just confused mostly because there's a there's not a lot of education on this topic. There's just too many topics to cover in graduate school. So this topic gets neglected sometimes. Not all the time. Some some programs cover it, but but it's often neglected. Okay. So, let's look at the research. What does the research say? Well, first off, in the research, the term repression is referred to in a number of different ways. You have the term repression, you have the term recovered memories, you have the term traumatic amnesia, dissociative amnesia, dissociation, or traumatic dissociative amnesia. <laughs> so just know that it's referred to in a number, number of different ways, partially because some people don't like to use Freudian terms in research because some people consider Freud to be ridiculous. And so, um, and plus repression implies a certain construct, whereas traumatic amnesia is perhaps more precise of a term. So anyway, now 
before going into the research, I just want to say it's really difficult to research repression and recovered memories. But, you know, the, the best science that we can do usually in situations like this is through experimentation, right? It, for instance, I, I always like to provide analogies, and I never know what kind of analogy is going to pop into my head. But if you want to test the hardness of a rock, you know, you, you have a diamond and you have a silicate, and you're, you're trying to uh, measure the, how hard each one is in you know, relation to the other. Well, you don't just ask people to tell you how hard they are. You know, you don't just go, hey, person, have you ever touched a diamond? How hard did it feel? Or how hard do you remember it being? Okay, have you, have you ever picked up another kind of a rock? How hard did that rock feel? Well, that's basically where we're at when it comes to psychology. We have to just sort of ask people their perceptions of things and their their own memories of things. And the other thing is, is we have to hope that they tell the truth, which is not always the case, my friend. So... Now, what we would do with the rocks in reality is we would actually take those two rocks into a lab and we would devise some sort of mechanic measuring system, you know, like you you put it under a, a load of a certain amount of weight and you wait until it cracks or breaks and you say, okay, well, this, this you know, substance has a rating of 500 pounds before it cracks or something. So you have this numeric laboratory experiment research design. Well, you know, in order for us to understand if repression is real or not, we would have to take a bunch of kids into the lab, which of course we would never do because it's barbaric and unethical and illegal. But we would have to take kids into a lab and we would have to sexually abuse them. I mean, that's what we would have. Now, that's ridiculous, right? But in order for us to really know something, that's what we would have to do. Of course, we would never do that. But we would have to take a bunch of kids into a lab, sexually abuse them, and then have a control group of kids who experience some other sort of significant event, you know, like skydiving or something, but something that wasn't abusive, particularly sexually abusive. And then 20, 30 years later, again, who would have the money to do this anyway? We would have to take these two groups of kids and we'd have to have, you know, hundreds of kids. And, you know, when they're 40 years old, we, we pull them back into the lab and we ask them if what they remember, we would just have to say, what do you remember about your childhood? What significant events? And then how would we know that they were lying or not? Like I was saying earlier, um, cause you know, maybe they're lying and, or maybe they're choosing not to remember, but we would have to, and then we would have to see if there's a difference. So say the skydiving control group say, you know, 70% of those kids say, oh, I remember going skydiving when I was a kid. And then the control group of the sexually abused kids say 10% of them say, I remember being sexually abused by people in a lab. <laughs> you know, again, it's just not, not, it's just horrible to think about really. But, but um, that would be the only way to know, you know, what the phenomenon actually was, Right. And again, we we would be relying on people to tell us the truth, which doesn't always happen. So, so even that experiment design would fall apart in some ways. Again, this is unethical. It's illegal. It's just frankly too expensive. And so, there's there's that would be the that would be one way of learning about 
you know, what repression is and whether or not it actually exists. And it still wouldn't necessarily demonstrate that. So there's just no way of demonstrating that repression is real. It's a very difficult thing to study. But to me, that's the beauty of psychology and psychotherapy. You know, the mind is, is largely a mystery still to us. And it doesn't lend itself easily to physical empirical examination and research. And therefore, we have to um, sometimes rely on wisdom and experience to guide us in the field of psychology and in particularly in psychotherapy, which is why I love this profession, because it's more art than hard science. I love that. But the problem is this. As a society, we don't like it when we don't know something. We, we love to know things. You know, we love it when science discovers something. We feel much more secure when we know things. And we just don't understand the, the brain very well. And that makes, us, that makes us very anxious. So people start jumping to conclusions because they hate being in this gray zone of uncertainty. Maybe recovered memories are real. Maybe they're not. And because of the limitations of, of our research, we really have a hard time answering these questions. Also, another issue of ours in terms of anxiety is we really like law and order. And when people commit sexual abuse, we want those people to go to jail. So we want to find these people and prosecute them. But there are rarely witnesses to sexual abuse, aside from the perpetrator and the victim. So when we prosecute perpetrators, we often rely on the victim's memory. And sometimes the victim doesn't feel safe enough to come forward until years later. And memory is malleable. And some people like to lie about sexual abuse. That happens sometimes. And so as a society, we have to decide whether or not someone is telling the truth or not. And as a jury, they have to decide between basically believing the perpetrator, the accused perpetrator, or the accusing victim, uh, because we we really want to we really want to prosecute perpetrators. You know, we really want perpetrators to go to jail and be separated and you know punished. But we also want to protect people from being falsely accused because that's abhorrent too. And there's just no way of proving whether or not someone is lying. We don't have a lie detector test. You know, the polygraph is not a real thing. There's just no way to know whether or not, you know, if a victim comes forward and says, my father sexually abused me in these ways, and the, and the father comes forward and says, I did not do any of those things, there's just no way to know. And when it comes to legal actions, we, we really want to know things. You know, we really want to know. And juries are often faced with having to decide between whether or not the victim seems reliable or not, or whether the perpetrator seems reliable or not, reliable or not. And this is where the squishiness of memory becomes a major problem. And in my experience, people don't like this fact. They react very badly to it. And they don't like the fact that we have no way of really knowing who's telling the truth. And that's why there's this huge controversy, because therapists are often called upon, you know, people like me, are called upon to help people recover memories, quote unquote, or to, you know, uh, comment on the veracity of someone's account. And therapists are also called to testify in court. And that's where there's a con that's why there's a controversy, because the stakes are so high in these cases, and many mistakes have been made, and these mistakes have been quite public, and, and when we make these mistakes, it makes us anxious, so we get all weird about the recovered memory thing, you know? You have, because there's all this anxiety about not knowing and about sexual abuse, and it, you know, there's just all this, you know, tension around that. 
we uh, don't deal with the controversy in a very balanced way. And so you have all these people fighting about it, you know. But um, having said all that, there is a consensus in our field about what recovered memories are, and you know, if it's real and if repression is real. So what is that consensus? Aren't you all curious? Well, according to various, you know, research and various experts and various different task forces that were, uh, you know, put forth by APA and other organizations, uh, the, the, there is a consensus. And the consensus is this. Number one, it is totally possible for people to recover memories of childhood, childhood abuse even decades later. So I just want to repeat this. The consensus is that repression, whatever we call it, whether we call it repression or recovered memories, whatever we call it, it is totally possible for people to recover memories of childhood abuse even decades later, meaning that they forgot the memories and then decades later, those memories emerge. And uh, so it's, it, the consensus is, is that that happens. Number two, memory can be altered by certain therapeutic techniques, which could result in false memories. So the consensus is also that memory, that therapists using particular techniques can absolutely create false memories within their clients, particularly children. Number three, the consensus is, is that some recovered memories can be false or even fake. So even when you have recovered memories, even occurred or quote unquote naturally outside of therapy, some of these recovered memories can be false and not something that actually happened. And again, even Freud thought that back in the day. And number four, much of the literature on both sides of the debate is misleading and biased. So you can't necessarily just go to the, to the literature on repression and recovered memories and, and know that you're going to get a good, um, you know that you're going to hear from the consensus from the consensus because there's still legitimate researchers out there that are on the extreme ends of the of this of this spectrum but the the general consensus among those who know what they're talking about basically take a both and approach that they're saying we agree with one side in that repression and recovered memories is real we also agree with the other side that some some of these quote unquote recovered memories are false and are invented by the therapist. So, so the experts are saying everyone's right and everyone's wrong essentially. So, cause, cause just getting back to, you know, the two different sides in terms of what they were saying, again, let's just look at the false memory. People were saying that there's no such thing as recovered memories. Well, that's wrong. They also say that there's no empirical evidence of the Freudian idea of repression, and that's wrong. Um, they're also, you know, the, the false memory people are also saying, why would someone wait so long to report a crime? Well, I think we know the answer to that. They were also saying that people make up memories of child, childhood sexual abuse because they want to sue for money. Well, yes, that's true. So that one I'll give them. Um, they're also saying that therapists are just injecting these thoughts into people's heads. And on that one, we can also say yes, in some cases, that's true. Now, on the victim advocates side, they were saying that sexual abuse is common. Yes. They were also saying that many victims come forward many years later. Yes. They were also saying that recovered memories and repressions are real things. Yes. Um, they were also basically saying that whenever a victim comes forward, it's true, which is just, you know, we can say that that's, 
not accurate. So, so the middle of the road is the consensus. All right, let's look at the research, specific research studies that I found. Research has shown that about 40% of people who experience childhood sexual abuse have quote-unquote recovered memories. In other words, research has found that about 40% of people report that they forgot the abuse and then later remembered it. Now, it's about 40%, give or take 20%, depending on the research study. But another study found that 19% of the women in their study who had experienced sexual, childhood sexual abuse reported forgetting the abuse for a period of time and then remembering it later. So it, it, if you want to take away in terms of a, of a percentage, it seems like between 10 and 20% of those people who have been abused sexually as a child have what we would call uh, uh, repression or recovered memories later on or have the potential of having recovered memories later on. So most people don't have... Um, don't repress their childhood sexual abuse. For most people who are sexually abused as a child, remember it quite easily. Um, they might not think about it all the time, but but when you ask them, you know, pointedly, do you remember the sexual abuse you experienced? Most people will say, yes, I remember it. I don't want to think about it, but yes, I remember it. Whereas a, a, a you know a sizable minority of people, ten twenty percent, uh, will will repress it and forget it. I suspect it's people who have had it um, earlier, more frequently, and more severely. That's just a suspicion, but um, but anyway. Another research uh, study found that 42% of children reported sexual abuse within 48 hours. Another study found that 24% of children told the abuse within a week, and 39% accidentally disclosed it. Another study found that 31% of children who experience sexual abuse disclose while the abuse is happening, uh, while 69% do not. So essentially the gestalt on these studies is that most children do not report the child sexual abuse soon after it happened. And so most kids keep it secret for various reasons, including the perpetrator says, I'm going to kill you and your family if you tell anyone. Um, but also because uh, children don't know what to say, or they might blame themselves, or, you know, they just might be confused by the whole event. And so, um, so most kids don't, don't say it. And so that the point there is, is that, you know, the, the false memory advocates would say, like, why wouldn't someone just report it after it happens? I mean, if, you, if someone steals your wallet, do you wait 30 years to report it? And, uh, you know, that basically is just ignorant of the context of, of childhood sexual abuse. Okay. Another study asked people to act as if they were on a jury. So this is a mock jury situation. And then they presented a number of cases of childhood sexual abuse. And they found that jurors tended to be more skeptical of reports from from victims if the allegations were made later than before. So in other words, they had, you know, they had a number of different cases presented to them. And, you know, in one case, the victim came forward 30 years later and said, you know, it's been 30 years since my abuse and now I'm coming forward. And they had other cases where it was two years later. Well, they found that jurors tended to believe the two-year span people and not the 30-year span people. So from this, it seems that juries might unfairly be skeptical of people who come forward 30 years later. Because really, if someone comes forward 
the the length of time it took them to come forward shouldn't be an indication of the veracity of their report. You know, just because someone took a long time to come forward with what happened to them, to me, and according to the research I found, that doesn't indicate any less likelihood that it happened, if that makes any sense. I mean, someone can lie about it two years afterwards, and they can also lie about it 30 years afterwards. It doesn't really mean much. In fact, in my anecdotal uh, evidence opinion, I would say that if it was 30 years after the fact, I would imagine I would I would be more likely to believe that person because it's so later after the fact. Why would you come forward with it, you know, other than to to try to, you know, get some justice or anyway. But in general, I tend to believe people's accounts anyway, because it's but I'll get into more of that later. Recent research also shows that as people gain education in psychology, they tend to be more skeptical of recovered memories and of memory in general. So uneducated people tend to think that memory is infallible. And then as you gain education, you tend to be like, well, you know, memory is weird, which is true. Uh, a number of experimental research studies have found that negatively balanced words, so you know, words that are associated with negative things, are quite susceptible to what they call retrieval inhibition, which is another term for repression, so to speak. So this suggests that repression is a natural human tendency when it comes to difficult memories. So in other words, when they spit out a bunch of words to people in the lab, and some are negative words and some are positive and some are neutral words. The negative words are harder to remember for people. And so, you know, maybe we have this mechanism to help us cope with negative experiences. We just tend to forget them so we can move on with our lives. Along these lines, studies have demonstrated that repression may actually be beneficial to one's well-being. Like when we forget particular, uh, you know, particular bad details or bad events in our past, it helps us to move forward in life. But of course, memory is much more complicated than that, considering that many of us would love to forget particular bad moments we've had in our lives, but just can't seem to let go of it. So memory isn't really, you know, so simple as that. But anyway, research also shows that memories of childhood sexual abuse that are remembered during recovered memory therapy are not as reliable as memories recovered naturally or in regular therapy. In other words, when therapists use techniques that are specifically designed to unearth memories, these memories have been found to be less reliable than memories that just emerge naturally while they're not in therapy or when they're just in regular therapy. You know, when you're just in regular supportive or, you know, uh, therapy that's not designed to make you recover these memories, then the memory is much more reliable. And this is a very important uh, you know, finding for us to pay attention to. It basically says never engage in, uh, m you know, traumatic memory recovery therapy. Just, you know, never do that, even though I have absolutely seen therapists do this. A study found that an active avoidance of a memory reduces the availability of this memory. So basically, when someone is abused and they actively try to not think about it, which is natural, those memories become more difficult to remember which makes sense, right? All right. So that's that's just a snippet of the research. Well, so what's the main issue here? Well, you know, it really depends on what we mean by repression and recovered memory. 
I find that in the research literature and in the clinical literature, you know, there are people that will say repression is ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, it's been denied by science. And you have another group of people say that repression has been demonstrated by science because blah, blah, blah. Well, it depends on the definition of repression and recovered memory. Uh, you know, there, for some uh, people, they, the, the people who hate Freud and hate recovered memory and hate repression, they have a very um, kind of narrow view of what recovered memory is. And for those who are proponents of recovered memory, they have a broader definition. For instance, uh, but I, I find that whenever we talk about labels, it's better to just talk about the experience. Because if we just talk about the experience, then most people can say, oh, yeah, I, I can relate to that. But as soon as you start applying labels to things, then it carries with it all this kind of culture. Um, you know, for example, recently I was rummaging through my parents' old photos and I came across this photo of a cat we had when I was a kid. And I'd completely forgotten about this cat. I mean, if you'd asked me about this cat, I would have been like, oh, yeah, maybe. But when I saw this picture... This cat was on my back porch, you know. One thing that I wish my parents, my parents took a lot of pictures of us kids, but they didn't do a lot of pictures of our pets growing up, and I wish they took more. But anyway, so just a little tip out there. If, you know, if you're taking pictures, make sure you snap a few of your pets. But anyway, um, I, when I saw this photo, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember Snowball. I remember Snowball the cat. And then suddenly all these memories emerged about me and this cat together. Now, was this a recovered memory? Did I, did I forget this cat? Yes. Was it buried in my unconscious, quote unquote? Yes. Did it require a stimulus to become recovered? Yes. So we all do this, right? It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery to be reminded of something that you had previously forgotten. Now, this is a little different because it's not like a traumatic memory, but I hope you get my point. Well, this is what it's like for people who were sexually abused as children. You know, they're abused. It's usually kept a secret. No one talks about it. The child doesn't like to think about it. The child's confused about it and just wants to put it behind them. So the child just focuses on other things. And they actually depict this really well in the documentary, The Keepers. Jean, a.k.a. Jane Doe, describes these moments in which she would be it just horrifically sexually abused and then she would emerge from the priest's office and she would and she she describes how when the door would close she would just forget it you know just it's like the door would close i'm moving on with my life you know why would it, it when you're in an impossible terrible situation like that why would you even want to think about what had happened it's just it's much more functional so to speak given the way how fucked up someone's context is and how fucked up the society is it's much more functional to just forget it so the child just focuses on other things and then after many years and and after years after the abuse stops the memories become quote-unquote unconscious now are they unconscious or are they just sort of like somewhere that you just don't think about i mean because the other thing that i like to i like to think about in this situation is at, at this very moment do you remember every single memory you've ever had of course not. You know, you have to think about a memory to remember them. You know, think about right now, remember every single teacher you had in grade school at once. Boom. You can't do that. But if I asked you, remember your child, remember your kindergarten teacher, and then you, you sort of like go down a road in your neurons that eventually leads you. I had Mrs. Barber. 
you go back to her and you go, okay, Mrs. Barber. And you go, okay, remember your first grade teacher. And, you go, uh, and then I had Mrs. Sieber. And you go, okay, remember your second, you know, and so on. So it, it, you have to pay attention to a particular memory pathway for a memory to be recalled. Now, are you, are these memories unconscious? Well, kind of, you know, but kind of not. So if you are very practiced at not going down a particular neural pathway, is that the same as forgetting? Or is that just merely not thinking about and not attempting to recall and just habitually not recalling something? I mean, if no one knows that you were sexually abused, they're not going to ask you about it. And it's just not going to come up. And so, you know, and why would you yourself go back to those memories when they make you feel like shit, particularly if you have PTSD, which you might or might not have. And so, you know, that's what happens. It's not, so that sort of lends itself to the second Freudian definition that repression is more of a conscious active avoidance of a, of a memory rather than a mechanism that kicks in for us, if that makes any sense. So until someone reminds us about a traumatic memory, um, we might not remember it. But when someone reminds us or gives us enough reason to think about and go down that road, then suddenly we quote-unquote remember that those things happened. And then uh, this might lead to further memories. And so we could call this recovered memory. So basically, you know, childhood sexual abuse is a significant enough experience to become a long-term memory, you know, because we tend to remember significant experiences. You know, if you're just having a humdrum experience, our, it doesn't tend to be encoded in long-term memory. That's just kind of the way our memories work. Not all the time, of course, but that's generally how it works. So because sexual abuse is significant enough of an event, we tend to encode that in long-term memory. But because the experience was not discussed afterwards, and because it wasn't thought about afterwards, it becomes buried under a pile of, of, of other memories. You know, normally when we experience something significant, we tend to talk about it afterwards and think about it. Like, if we get in a car accident, well, we're probably going to talk about it with other people. Oh, my God, yesterday I got in a car accident. And we might think about it. You know, when you're in the car next, you're like, oh, I remember that car accident that I was in. Well, every time you talk about an event and a memory and every time you think about it, this makes the memory more easily accessible because we not only remember the event, but we also remember how we talked about it. And we also remember the remembering, like how I remember looking up the stairs when I was two years old. Well, the, the reason why I remember that event is because I remember remembering it probably like once a year my entire life, you know, at any given, you know, once a year-ish, the topic of do you re what's the earliest memory you remember comes up or do you remember things when you were a kid or remember when we lived in Kent, Washington or, you know, like, so every year for, you know, 45 years or something, I've been occasionally thinking about this and remembering it. So the memory has become very accessible to me. But how many other memories did I remember about my two-year-old life? You know, how, when I was five and six, how many memories were accessible to me then, but I just didn't choose to think about that are just now completely lost to history. Uh, and I'll never be able to recover them, even the significant events. So, you know, 
that's how memory works is is we we need to remember them we need to remember remembering them in order to have it be a very uh, strong accessible memory so for people who have been sexually abused they've never talked about it and they've never thought about it many of them you know not everyone of course because many do many do talk about it many many do think about it but for some people they don't think about it they don't talk about it but it's there the memories are there but they're buried under a lot of active avoidance of those memories anyway all right so what am, what are my observations clinically well when i'm doing trauma work even with lesser traumas like less significant traumas people always remember more details upon each retelling of the story the first time they tell me their narrative their trauma narratives as we might call it they remember the broad strokes you know they they'll they'll tell me and i actually whenever i do trauma narratives i write it all down I, I have I have a note taking system and I've learned over the years that the first time they tell me a story, I leave a lot of gaps on the page, the piece of paper, uh, because I know later on they're going to fill in those gaps because originally I would just write out their story on, in my notes and then I would end up having to write these tiny little addendums in between every line. And so I realized that the first time they, you know, they would tell me the narrative again, even if it's a simple trauma like you know, a car accident they experienced at the age of 40 or a, you know, really painful breakup and divorce they went through when they were, you know, 50 or, or something. You know, these are difficult moments, but they're not like being repeatedly sexually abused as a child. So the first time they tell narrative, it's broad strokes. And even if I ask them to go into more detail, they, they won't have those details. But the next time they tell me, they'll remember some in-between details, you know, some, a little bit more color, a little bit more specificity. And then each time they remember the story and each time they tell me the story, they remember finer and finer details. And sometimes people even say, oh my God, I just remember something. I totally forgot. And then they tell me about a detail that they had previously completely forgotten about. And they're like, huh, that's interesting that I forgot that. And sometimes people will also say, I'm not sure if I'm making this up, but I seem to remember that blah, blah, blah. And so in these situations, we both agree that the memory is not as reliable as the other ones that seem much more, uh, you know, much more accurate. And that's what I see. You know, when, when, when someone is ready to remember something, then they remember it. And this is an important um, thing to take away from. It, many people believe this, including myself, that... You know, when someone's ready to remember a trauma, then they remember it. And it's not a magical thing. It, 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 the way I see it is that when you go through a difficult moment, you actively, and, it, and it's very distressing to think about. Um, you know, one of the reasons why it's distressing to think about uh, in some situations is say, you know, your father is sexually abusing you. Well, you as a four-year-old depend on your father. You need him to take care of you. And so it, it's extremely anxiety-provoking to think that the one person is, that who's supposed to be keeping you safe from the world is the one person who is uh, threatening you and, and really harming you. Well, one way to cope with that anxiety is to just completely repress the sexual abuse memories and then then that you can live in a fantasy world that your dad is actually there to help you, which makes you feel better. And so, so that's another reason why people forget. But anyway, so, you know, 
as a child, when you're sexually abused, you just, you, you, you don't have the space or the context often to be able to talk about these experiences. And so you just, you bury them, you know, meaning that you don't, you try not to think about them. When the first sign of something that reminds you that comes up, you avoid it, you know, you just, you just go, oh, you know, I don't like that. I'm going to, I feel something uncomfortable happening and I'm going to, I'm going to avoid that. You know, it's sort of like, imagine that you're in a room and, um, the, and you're blindfolded and you start walking around and you, you, in one direction, you start feeling like intense heat that is very uncomfortable. Well, you don't know what's over there. You know, maybe it's a fire, maybe it's a, a you know, a bathtub, maybe it's, um, you know, you just don't know it, but you know, it's uncomfortable. And so you just go, Oh, not go in that direction. And you turn around and you go back to the cool corner of the room. Well, that's kind of what it's like, you know, when you're, you know, 30 years old and you have these traumatic memories and your mind starts to go toward those memories, you start to feel uncomfortable. And then you go, oh, you know, stop doing that. And you go a different direction in your mind. You know, we know through mindfulness techniques that you can direct your mind toward and away certain things. And that's what these people do. Now, are these memories repressed? Are they in the quote unquote unconscious? You know, I I don't really see it. I kind of see it that way, depending on one definition and I kind of don't. But anyway, the point is, is that once this adult gets to a place where they finally are in a space where most of them understands that they are safe enough to explore. And oftentimes this is in therapy. You know, they sit down, they're in therapy and they're talking about childhood and they start to feel that distress. But there's also a pressure behind them saying, talk about this because it's going to help you. You got to get this off your chest. And so when they are in a safe enough place, either individually or in, you know, therapy or with someone else, then that's when you start to see them um, letting go of that fear and they actually start talking about it. So that's what I've seen. And then incidentally, when that happens, you have to engage in trauma therapy techniques. You don't want to just elicit the story right away because it could become so overwhelming that the person could be harmed by that telling of the story. So, um, you know, listen to my trauma therapy episodes on that. Anyway, um, incidentally, I've also had experience with clients who can't remember anything from their childhood. And in every case, there's always childhood trauma involved. You know, um, for example, I had one client who tried for years to try to jog his memory. He couldn't remember anything before the age of 10, nothing. He had no memories before the age of 10. It was just a big blank. I sent him to various other professionals in an attempt to help him recover these memories, but nothing worked. We tried to jog his memory by looking at old photographs. He tried to jog his memory by returning to his old uh, neighborhood home, childhood home, and by talking with his family members, but nothing worked. And after years of trying, because it was very distressing for him, you know, he's just like, I, I, I want to remember, this is very upsetting. And after years of trying, he just had to accept that he could not remember anything. I, I suspected over, you know, as we went down this road, I was like, well, eventually something will jog his memory, but it never did, you know, unfortunately. So 
the other side of this is, in my experience, is that sometimes the memories are just gone and they are not recovered. They're so buried that they're just not going to emerge, you know. So that's just another thing from my experience. Okay. So to repeat, according to various research and various task forces, the consensus is the conclusions are all the same. Number one, repression and recovered memories are real. Even decades later, people can recover and uh, remember things. Number two, memory can be altered by certain therapeutic techniques, which can result in false memories. Number three, some recovered memories are actually false. And number four, much of the literature on both sides of the debate are misleading and biased. So you can't necessarily depend on the literature. Okay, so the last few things I want to talk about here, I want one of the things I want to talk about is dissociation. Because some of you might be saying, well, aren't we really talking about dissociation? So um, dissociation is also controversial in the literature, but not among people who work with trauma. If you work with trauma, dissociation is not a controversy. Dissociation is, you know, very much a real phenomenon. Uh, and it can be confused with repression because it can also involve forgetting things. But dissociation is really quite different from repression. Um, but it also kind of depends on the definition you're using because some definitions of dissociation are very similar to repression. But usually dissociation is used to describe a very distinct mental process. Dissociation is complicated, but in a nutshell, as the way I see it, frankly, we develop a mechanism of dissociation early in life, not later in life, you know, the first four or five years of life, due to ongoing abuse or neglect or mistreatment. This mental mechanism of dissociation protects us from having to deal with traumatic events, and it allows the child to remain attached to the abusive parent but it uphold, you know, because it upholds that fantasy that the child, that the caregiver is a good person. But it's not, it, it's, it's, dissociation is another state of mind that the, that, the, that the mind enters. This can be just regular dissociation. Uh, you know, if you want to listen to other episodes about dis- dissociation, you can do that. You know, like becoming foggy and sort of distant. People describe themselves as being in the back of their brain, kind of watching themselves through a fog. Um, this is the way dissociation is, is sometimes referred to. Or dissociation can also take the form of, dis- of dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder in which distinct personality state or states or alters are developed to deal with different contexts. And there are other forms of dissociation as well, but, but that's what dissociation is in a nutshell. And then later in life as an adult, when triggered, people who have developed this earlier mechanism of dissociation can enter a dissociative state whether they need it or not. For example, even though people are safe in my office when they're in therapy with me, if they have developed a mechanism of dissociation, they tend to dissociate while they're in therapy because sometimes therapy dips into difficult topics. So even though they're safe with me and they don't need to dissociate, that mechanism will kick in. So dissociation is, you know, it's a, it's a state of mind, okay, which is very different from repression. Repression is not a state of mind. It's merely a way for the mind to avoid having to think about something. It's basically either you can consider it what we've been talking about in terms of just like active avoidance of a memory or a memory that is just hard to access. 
Whereas association is a state of mind that can lead to repression or lead to forgetfulness. Now, they're caused by the same things. They're caused by abuse, neglect, and mistreatment. And it may become repetitive. You know, repression might become repetitive like dissociation. In other words, if you repress a bunch of memories, then it, then it becomes much easier to repress new difficult memories. So re- the repression mechanism, like dissociation, might become overused by the individual, you know, which is similar to dissociation in that if you dissociate as a child, then it becomes much easier to dissociate later because the mind has this new pathway to exploit when needed. But repression is very different since it's not a state of mind. It, it can be just a one-time-only sort of you know, defense. In a way, repression can be a simple process that many people engage in, whereas dissociation is, is developed in response to severe ongoing early trauma. Now, this isn't to say that repression can't happen within difficult trauma because it can happen in severe trauma, but severe trauma isn't necessary for repression to occur, if that makes any sense. Okay, so let's go into uh, the the keepers specifically. Again, I'm not going to, I'm going to spoil kind of stuff, but I don't think it'll ruin the experience of watching the documentary. So after watching the documentary, I completely believe the accounts of the three victims of the priest Maskell. I refuse to call him Father Maskell, by the way, because, it, you know, that implies a certain respect to him. I just, I'm just going to call him a priest. Um, Jean, she was the Jane Doe person. Uh, Jean had a number of very convincing recovered memories. You, if you've seen the documentary, Jean talks about how in her, I don't know, maybe 50s or 40s or something, her she would do these meditations and then these memories would just pop into her head. Well, as she was talking about this, I, I and in the very, they interview her a lot, you know, in the documentary. I was completely convinced as to, you know, her stories. However, I'm not totally convinced about one detail in her account. I, I believe absolutely in all of her stories that she was abused by this priest named Maskell. But I'm not sure that Maskell brought her to the body of Kathy Sesnick. I don't think she's lying. I don't, I don't think she's, you know, just inventing something. I just think that it's likely that she misremembered that detail. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen, you know, because it could have happened. I'm just saying that I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out that that was a false memory, mostly because I can't see a reason why Masco would show her the dead body. Also, the main hypothesis of the documentary was that Masco himself did not commit the murder and that some random other dudes did it, you know? So I would guess that Masco would either not even know where the body was or he would really try to stay disconnected from Kathy's murder. So why would he bring a girl from his school to her, to, you know, the child's, uh, to Kathy's dead body in the woods. It just doesn't make any sense, you know? So now I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying it does, it, it doesn't seem likely. And it, it kind of, it was one of the later memories that emerged for her. And so I think that it's possible that she's just confused, you know, there's, there's a fine line between fantasy and memory in, in a situation like that. And so uh, now again, you know, it, I'm not saying it didn't happen because God knows. I mean, it all could be false. It all could be true. There's just, there's just no way to know. As I was saying earlier, you just have to, you just have to make a guess sometimes about, you know, how truthful someone is. 
you know, all three of those victims talk about how they are sexually abused in, in similar ways, and they could all be lying. They could all be misremembering. It doesn't seem likely that they are. In fact, it seems extremely likely that they're telling the truth. But we just we just don't know, and and there's no there's no way to prove it in the same way that you can say prove the hardness of a diamond versus some other rock, right? Now, you know, having said all this, Maskell was a complete freak of nature, so maybe he did bring Gene to the body of Kathy Segnick, Sesnick. I mean, he, he was pure, uh, you know, just a pure monster. So I wouldn't put it past him to do that, but um, it doesn't seem likely. But I do believe the rest of Gene's stories. Now, did Jean repress her memories? Did she recover her memories? Yeah, I I think she fits the pure definition of repression, and because it it wasn't like she was necessarily avoiding the memories; it, they were really deep, you know, and they had to kind of pop out of her in a certain way, and so she fits kind of the classical definition of repression and recovered memories. All right, so. What should we all, what should we do about this as clinicians? Well, number one, we should learn how therapists can create false memories on other people, particularly if you work with children and with child sexual abuse. You, particularly if you work with children and particularly with child sexual abuse. If you, if you work with these populations, you should absolutely understand the mechanisms in which therapists can absolutely create false memories in children. Number two, Remember that you are not an investigator. It is not your job to investigate. Do not give in to your savior, savior complex. Your, your, your role is not to save children from the world. That's not your role. You're a, you're a therapist. You're a counselor. You're a healer. You provide treatment in a session for their goals. You do not save people from the world, and you are not an investigator of truth. This is very important because I, I know a lot of therapists who think they are saviors of the world and they are investigators of the truth, and that's just not true. You, you provide a treatment service to people who come to your office or wherever your context of work is. Number three, avoid believing that you can detect childhood sexual abuse. I know a lot of therapists who think that they can detect secret childhood sexual abuse. I've seen many cases in which a therapist assumes that a client has been sexually abused based on very little information. For example, I recently heard a professor say the following, you know, about an actual client. The five-year-old client was playing aggressively with dolls. This is a sure sign that she's been sexually abused. Now, this is a paraphrase, of course, because I wasn't taking notes on what she was saying, but this is essentially what she was saying. She was essentially saying, here we have an example of a five-year-old playing aggressively with these two dolls. This is a 100%, without a doubt, reliable sign that this child has been, that has been sexually abused. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this bullshit, and from people who should know better. So this is ridiculous. You know, No one knows that. If someone had the ability to detect that, uh, that would be such a powerful mechanism to just watch someone do something and be like, I know exactly what has happened to this child. I mean, that is, that is not possible. There are so many reasons for particularly a child playing aggressively with two dolls. I mean, you know, pull your head out of your ass people. So don't, 
don't act like you're some magical, you know, person with child sexual abuse radar or something. Now, you might have intuition, you might have a spidey sense or something, but you really want to be skeptical of that and you really want to make sure you get other data. And frankly, you might not ever get that data. That's the other thing is like when I talk with other therapists, particularly novice therapists, I guess, but really everyone, when we talk about cases like this, there's this pressure to decide. You know, I'll hear, I'll hear people say, um, well, you know, there's allegations of sexual abuse, but I know it didn't happen. And then I'll say, well, how do you know it didn't happen? And they'll say, well, you know, the kid, you know, the kid lies about all sorts of stuff and he, he's always trying to get attention. And I'll be like, that's it. That's, that's all the data you have. And they're like, well, I, what are you saying? Are you saying it happened? And I'm saying, no, the, the point is, is you don't know. You don't know if it happened or not. And it's hard for therapists to say that. It's hard for therapists, in my experience, particularly if you've been working with a client for a long time, because you kind of need to know the answer to that question in order to how to proceed in some ways, or at least therapists think they know they need to know the answer to the question. So sometimes they'll just invent an answer to the question so they can sort of move forward. Because if Johnny has been sexually abused, then it changes the treatment plan, right? But if, but if Johnny is lying about it, then it makes a different treatment plan. And so how do you do two different treatment plans at once if you don't know? Well, that's really what you have to do. When, when you don't know, you basically have to incorporate two different treatment plans given either potential reality, you know, because you're just never going to know. And I hear the opposite too. It's, you know, so, so and so said she was sexually abused and I'm a hundred percent convinced that it's true. And I'm like, okay, what, you know, what brings you to that conclusion? Well, you know, just the way she talks about it. And I'll be like, well, how does she talk about it? Well, you know, she describes these kind of details and I'll say, do you have any other data? You know, do you have a confession from the father? Do you have corroboration from the mother? Do you have, um, I don't know, do you have DNA tests or, you know, I don't know what you'd have, but, but other, other sorts of, you know, witnesses, obviously. Um, nope. I just have the account from the child. Well, children can make up stuff. Now it's not likely that they're making up stuff. So if I was to make a bet about whether or not a child had been sexually abused and they were giving these very detailed stories, I, I would, I would make a bet that it, that it happened. Cause most of the time when people make an allegation, it's, it's accurate, but do I know for sure? No, I don't know. Uh, children can make up stuff. And so it's not, uh, and, and, and I, so I also find that people will uh, be very uh, averse to discounting, particularly their own clients' allegations of sexual abuse because they don't want to be, they, they want to support their client and they want to they care about them and they want to believe them. And so, so, and that's good. But, at the, but you, you have to reserve a portion of your mind for objective um, evaluation of things, which is that people lie uh, and multiple people. So you can, you can have a witness saying they saw it and they could be lying too. The, but the point is, is you don't need to know as a therapist because that's not your job. You, you know, as I was saying before, it's your role to provide treatment. It's not your role to know the truth. Um, and so along these lines, you want to avoid acting as if you can detect the truth because you can't, you, you just, you're just going to have to sit with that anxiety and live with it. You just don't know you, you have a guess and you have data, but you just don't know. So, um, so there's that. Uh, now uh, on the other hand, you want to create a safe environment for people to talk about whatever they want, you know? 
hopefully. So in terms of like trying to detect, you know, I find a lot of people, it's like, oh, I'm detecting something and therefore I know it. Well, instead of trying to rely on detection, why not just create a safe environment so that the client can actually step forward with the information and and then you don't have to rely on your radar anymore. Okay, so number one was you should learn how therapists can create false memories. Number two is remember you're not the investigator. That's not your job. Number three is avoid believing you, you can detect things. And number four, avoid getting into legal battles. If a client recovers a memory of abuse and they start talking about taking legal action, make sure you consult with an expert about how to avoid getting in trouble. Because I've seen many therapists get sucked into a legal battle, and then they get sued because they don't know what they're doing. So make sure you be careful before you just get sucked into a legal battle. Number five, understand how hypnosis really works. Don't believe the magical claims. Number six, educate clients about how memory works. You know, you, when, when they start talking about recovered memories, you, you want to have a little talk with them about how memory is malleable and how false memories can be absolutely real. And so you just want to create an environment in which both of you understand that you're exploring something and you're trying to zero in on something, but it's hard to know for sure if something actually happened or not. Number seven, learn how to help people talk about shameful events. You want to you learn how to create a space for people to come forward with this information. That's very important so that you're not, again, relying on detection. Number eight, learn how to help people with their trauma. And number nine, learn how to advocate for victims because that is important as well. It's important to know how to direct them to legal services and to protection services and to services that can help them recover memories and, and maybe even, uh, you know, recover from these traumas and that sort of thing. So, so you really want to, there's a lot of things that you need to know how to do. All right. So in conclusion, the bottom line here, number one, childhood sexual abuse is happening all the time. Most of it goes unreported. Many abusers are never prosecuted and many victims are made to feel ashamed that, and they consequently never tell anyone about what happened. This is a major problem in our society and we need to do more to reduce the prevalence of child sexual abuse. And we need to do more to help victims come forward. And we need to do more to help family members cope better when their children reveal to them that they've been, you know, abused sexually. Number two, Repression is a demonstrated phenomenon. We probably evolved the repression mechanism to cope with trauma. It's clear that some people absolutely forget traumatic childhood experiences, and then later on they remember these events. It's generally accepted that this happens, whatever label we put to it, whether it's repression or traumatic amnesia. Um, so it's, uh, it's real. Repression is real. Number three, there are documented cases in which people falsely accuse people of childhood sexual abuse. These people are either lying or they're confused or some other reason, but there are absolutely cases in which people are falsely accused of childhood sexual abuse from people, again, who either know they're lying or uh, have false memories. Number four, there are documented cases in which therapists have inserted memories of childhood sexual abuse into their clients. This assertion, this insertion might have been conscious, 
by the therapist, which is, but is probably not likely. It's probably more likely that the therapist was just not knowing what they were doing and they accidentally injected a memory into a client. And so we need to be aware of that as well. Number five, we need to understand that in some cases, we might not ever know if someone is telling the truth or if they're misremembering something or if they're lying. When we experience a case in which someone comes forward with allegations of childhood sexual abuse, we have almost no way of knowing if they're telling the truth. That sucks, but you know, that's just the way it is. We have guidelines, you know, like if a child provides details about sex that they should not know about at their age, then we might tend to believe that child's account. But here's the thing. We have no idea because we weren't there and no one has a video of that event to show us. And that lack of certainty is extremely anxiety provoking. And we need to just acknowledge our anxiety and sit with it and, and, and just be with the anxiety rather than jumping to conclusions or, you know, racing to a conclusion that you have a detection device in your head or, or, you know, beating a drum of some kind. We just have to, as, as clinicians, as objective clinicians, we need to just sit there and say, you know what, I will just never, there, there will be, there will be many cases in which I will just not know the answer to that question. And guess what? It's not my job to know. I suspect that something happened and I'm going to do a lot along those lines. You know, I'm, uh, some people think that when I say that we should acknowledge the fact that we don't know, some people think what I mean by that is that when a client says, I was sexually abused by my dad yesterday, some people think that what I'm telling people to do is to say, well, I don't know if you're lying. Maybe you're lying. That, that is not what I'm saying. In fact, most of the time, depending on the circumstance, you should completely outwardly agree with that person that you believe them. You should be like, oh my God, that is terrible. You know, would you, what do you want? Would you like to talk about it? Would you, do you want me to call CPS? You know, you should, you should absolutely act as if it happened, not in an act sort of way, but just, you know, uh, think literally everything a client tells us about their lives could be a lie. And literally everything they tell us could be a distortion and literally everything they tell us could be a false memory. But we have to start somewhere, right? And so when someone tells us something like this, just go with it. That doesn't harm anything. And plus, it might be your mandated duty to do so anyway, right? So, so now, but when it comes to legal action, that's when you have to consult with someone because that's different. If you, when you're in therapy and you're agreeing with someone and you're advocating for them and you're helping them, that's one thing. But when you actually step out of the office and start actually going on the record with a judge or with a lawyer or with a report saying that child, you know, this child has been abused, that's a different thing. You know, that that's when you have to be objective. Um, and you have to protect yourself because just because a child said something doesn't mean that it happened especially to adversarial court proceedings. Okay. And lastly, number six, in general, when, as I'm saying, you know, when you have a client who reports childhood sexual abuse, they're likely telling the truth. There are so many reasons for a victim to not tell someone about being abused. So when someone tells you that they've been abused, it's very likely that it actually happened to them. In fact, I can only remember a few cases in which a child 
lied about childhood sexual abuse. It's very rare. And I've heard thousands of stories of childhood sexual abuse. So there's a very small percentage of stories that were found to be inaccurate. So as far as I'm concerned, if someone tells me that they were abused as a child sexually, I assume that they're telling me the truth. But again, I always hold out in my mind, well, I don't know, you know, I I can't say for sure if it happened or not because I wasn't there. And memory is weird. And I'm definitely not going to go on the line in terms of a legal report saying that this happened because I wasn't there. I only have what this person is telling me and people lie to me all the time. If it's one thing that experience tells you as a therapist is that you are not, I am not a good detector of lies. I, I had a client, I used to think I was, but I had a client not, not so long ago lie to me about something that was pretty significant for, for months, if not you know, a year or two. And if you would have asked me to put money on the line, you know, lots of money on the line that this person was telling the truth, I would have made that bet. I was extremely convinced. And I, and I was actually kind of looking. I was like, well, I don't know. And I'd sort of test a little bit. And I was like, nope, she's telling the truth. And then it comes out she was lying completely 100% every single time we met for months, if not, you know, I think it was like a year and a half. And I was like, my God, I am a terrible detector of lies. And she wasn't the best liar, you know, and she wasn't, she wasn't very, she didn't seem like a schemer or, uh, or, you know, someone who was good at manipulating other people. She just didn't seem like that to me. And so the moral of the story here is, is, you know, you just can't tell and don't think you completely know when someone's lying. You might have a better idea when someone's lying than the average person, but you're not perfect, you know? So, so you just always have to say, well, you know, I don't know. You know uh, I, I suspect they're right. And I'll, I'll operate as if they're telling the truth. But if you had to put me, you know, on the line and actually make me commit, I would say, I don't know. I just have, I, I can only go off of what they tell me. And that's just how it is. And, and that's, again, the beauty of this profession is that it's so weird and, and squishy and uncertain and requires consultation and, and reflection and counter-transference management and understanding how culture works and everything. You know, it's, it's very complicated. So, so anyway, just to reiterate my final bottom lines here is that sexual abuse happens all the time and it's terrible. And we're not doing enough to reduce it because we're stupid, puritanical, uh, dumbasses. Uh, number two, repression is real. Number three, there are documented cases in which people falsely accuse people of childhood sexual abuse. There are documented cases in which there. Number four, there are documented cases. Documented cases in which therapists have inserted memories. Number five, we need to understand that in some cases we might not ever know if someone's telling the truth. And number six, in general, you just you generally want to believe your clients when they're talking about um, childhood sexual abuse. And number seven, if it comes to a legal action, make sure you are talking with an expert or are acting very carefully and don't just, you know, participate in legal actions without knowing what you're doing. All right. Well, that does it for that deep dive. How long of an episode was that? Two hours long. Interesting. All right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, patrons. It's been a journey. I can feel the top of my brain sort of hurting. Sometimes when I 
talk for long periods of time, my brain starts to hurt because it's just working overdrive. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can tell that. So I, so <laughs> in preparation for this episode, you know, it's been taking me weeks. You know, I watched a documentary, I looked up all this research, and then uh, late last night, I was, I was thinking about, well, maybe I'll start recording, and I was like, no, nah, I'm probably too tired. And so this morning, I was like, okay, you know jolt up on a bunch of coffee and then, you know, you know, hit the notes and just really go for it. And by the end of these two hours, my brain is just about to break, I think. Um, uh, but you know, everything's fine. And I'm recording this on the 4th of July, by the way, so probably post, uh, a week after that, but, uh, 4th of July, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings about America these days, but today I'm going to f- choose to focus on the good of America, our our ideals of freedom and of justice and of helping the oppressed and of helping the marginalized people and the Bill of Rights and what the Constitution was designed to do. And I'm going to focus on those things. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. You really, really do.